Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're on Team Human, rest stop on the information superhighway. A moment to press pause and ask, what are we doing for whom and why? Winter may be coming, but we are an adaptable species. Our ability to withstand what lies ahead will depend on our resilience, our solidarity, and the extent to which we can keep our evolved social mechanisms functioning in a world that has been designed to atomize, isolate, and divide us. Playing for Team Human today, systems thinker, writer, and filmmaker, Nora Bateson. We pull the information out of context, and the thing is, we never put it back. So basically, warm data is the idea of putting it back. Put it back in the context and see what happens. Nora will be telling us how to stop looking at things as objects and begin seeing the spaces and connections between them. It's not too late to bring our species back from the brink. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I've been feeling really bad lately when people bring up UBI, this idea of universal basic income, that uh, it's really the idea that as people get poor, the government should just kind of print money and give it to people so they have enough money to live. And in principle, I agree with a social safety net. And I actually wrote uh, in, in Throwing Rocks to Google Bus, I wrote, a majority of a chapter arguing why UBI, universal basic income, is a good thing. You know, for for a whole lot of reasons. One, people just deserve. If there's a surplus, which there is in America anyway, a surplus of food and housing and all, that rather than them needing a job to prove they're worthy of partaking of the spoils of capitalism, they should just be able to have that stuff if we really have it in abundance. And then. I was doing a talk at Uber. It was at the peak of the book tour. I was doing a talk at Uber 
about you know the 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 problems in Silicon Valley and how these companies are growing at the expense of real people and real places and how really what a company like Uber is doing is not some kind of creative destruction but really just destructive destruction using the power of their capital to undercut really everybody extract everything and exercise this sort of scorched earth monopoly strategy and I even appealed to their their business sense. I think it was explaining to them that if they drain their market entirely of money, then there won't be anyone left to take Uber cars. And one of the employees raised his hand during the talk and then said, uh, well, what about UBI? It was a weird moment. I mean, I was thinking, wait a minute. But coming from their mouths, UBI really changed the way I thought about it. Not that someone who works at Uber can't mean well and want uh, uh, you know, there, there to be some sort of uh, welfare compensation for the destruction of their, of their program. But it seemed to me that when, when the developers of Uber or, or other you know, prominent Silicon Valley titans, you know, the, the Chris Hughes or the, the Y Combinator guys, when they argue for universal basic income, they're really just asking the government to print more money to pump into their business. You know, so people could then drive Uber cars for less than minimum wage. And as long as the cash keeps flowing, Uber's wheels keep turning. And there's a real hypocrisy underlying this embrace of UBI, because they're thinking of it the way a software developer might. UBI is a patch on their program, and their program's not working correctly, you know, or it's working correctly, but with with unintended consequences of making everybody poor. The purpose of digital capitalism has always been to extract value from people and places and deliver it to those at the top, you know, if the people, the drivers, the, the passengers, if they were able to find any way of retaining any of this value for themselves, it means that something's wrong with the model. There's money that's escaping. Now, this goes all the way back to the Dutch East India Trading Company when they made it illegal back in the 1500s for the natives to make rope. They thought, well, wait a minute, we're buying rope from natives. So they got a law passed by by Holland to say that it's illegal for anyone to make rope except their company. So now the people who were natives making rope had to be employees of the Dutch East India Company and get uh, little to nothing for doing the very same job. It's the same thing that that Walmart does when it moves into a community. They undercut all the local businesses to the point where they all go bankrupt. And then Walmart becomes the sole employer so they can drop their prices, you know, or, or raise their prices back to whatever they should be and pay everybody less than a livable wage. And that's why when you, Walmart moves into a town, you see more people go on welfare because it's actually Walmart's part-time employees who have to now go on welfare in order to pay for their lives. They go on food stamps. So if we're in a digital economy where this stuff is happening even even at a much faster rate than a Walmart could deliver, this idea of UBI, this policy that was originally a way to kind of take extreme poverty just off the table in a civilized country, it serves as a way to keep the wealthiest people entrenched at the very top 
of this economic system. So the, the vast transfer of wealth from the poor to rich may be complete, but now we can use UBI to funnel even more capital up to the already wealthy and keep the scheme going, right? The government prints money or taxes some corporate profits and then showers it down on the people so they can continue spending the money as they already do. All that's really happening is that more and more capital is accumulating at the top. You know, so it's under really the, the guise of compassion that UBI just turns us from stakeholders or even citizens just to consumers. You know, all the ability that we had to create or exchange value has been taken away. So all we can really do with our consumptive acts is deliver more power to the people who can finally, without any exaggeration, be called our corporate overlords. No, income like this, income, cash from the government is a booby prize. If we're going to get a handout or some form of, of, of reparation even for centuries of corporate extraction, it shouldn't be an allowance, but assets, an actual ownership stake. When you look at the wealth gap in the United States, it has much less to do with the difference between people's salaries than in their assets. We know that African-American families earn a little bit more than half the salary of the average white family, but the median wealth of white households is 20 times that of African-American households. It's the amount of assets they have. And assets matter not just because there's money in the bank, but think about a poor kid going to college. If a poor kid goes to college and a rich kid goes to college, let's say the poor kid gets a scholarship even to go to that college. Now they're done. What does the rich kid get to do? Well, a free internship. Or if his parents want, you know, they, they buy him a studio so he can uh, uh, make paintings or uh, write a, a young adult novel on spec. You know, the person without assets doesn't get to do that. They've got to go get a job right away. So the kinds of opportunities that are available to people without assets are very different than the people, than the people with them. If Silicon Valley really wanted to implement a strategy to help and repair the economic operating system, they shouldn't be looking at universal basic income, but universal basic assets. And that was first proposed, at least I first saw it, was proposed by uh, Marina Gorbis from the Institute of the Future. She um, was on this show earlier last year. And she points out that in Denmark, where people have public access to a great portion of the nation's resources, that a person born into a poor family is just as likely to end up wealthy as his peers born into a wealthier household. Fixing the economy, especially the one ravaged by uh, digital uh, entrepreneurial extraction, is not a matter of giving allowance to poor people so they can continue spending it with the same companies that are busy swallowing up the entire world in which we live. No, it's a matter of deprivatizing the commons and letting people have an ownership stake in the things they're doing. Even if it's too late for Uber to let its drivers own the company, it's not too late for us to start companies, cooperatives, commons, where we all Everyone owns a stake in the thing. And then we can change our role in the economy from mere consumers to stakeholders, our role in society from consumers to citizens, and our role with each other from uh, competitors to partners.
Now, the only substantive change we can make to our economic operating system is to distribute ownership, control, and governance of the real world to the people who live in it. I'm Nathan Schneider, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Sarah Loggison, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Dana Boyd, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Philip McKenzie, and I'm on Team Human. You're listening to Team Human. Our guest today, systems theorist and the author of Small Arcs of Larger Circles, Nora Bateson. I first met Nora Bateson at a general semantics conference where she was screening her then brand new film, An Ecology of Mind, about her father, Gregory Bateson, one of the principal developers of cybernetic and systems theory. But as I got to know her work, particularly the book Small Arcs of Larger Circles, I realized she was taking what we think of as systems theory to a whole new and intrinsically human level. I ran into her again at the 50th anniversary conference of the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto, where she gave an entirely optimistic yet grounded talk on how to bring an awareness of the liminal spaces between systems into account as we attempt to make our world more consonant with the values of life. Once the proceedings were done, she kindly agreed to retreat into a corner with me while the chairs and tables were being put away all around us. So I'm, I'm here with Nora Bateson at Institute for the Future. We Each of us did uh, provocative talks for these futurizing people about, uh, about humans. And I'm wrestling with so many questions that you have... I mean, I won't say the answers to, but understandings of and, and insights on. And maybe if we kind of put them together, then great things will happen and we'll save everybody. That sounds great. Uh, so, I mean, you're you're kind of a systems thinker. I mean, how, how would you describe yourself that way? You're like a systems philosopher or a... You know what? I love that. I want to be kind of a systems <laughs> thinker. I, I think I want that on my, my next business card. <laughs> She's kind of a systems thinker. No, but that's kind of perfect. <laughs> <laughs> because um, I think that there's all this beautiful, incredible history uh, around systems theory and systems thinking, complexity theory and complexity thinking. But there's also uh, a need right now to kind of move into new territories with it. And um, that's the kind of part. And I, mm -hmm. I really like that. I mean, so not like necessarily like uh, uh, Santa Fe Institute trying to understand the economy as a weather system and all that, but systems, I mean, the, the thing that seems different to me about the way you think of systems is that it's not just understanding, say, that a tree is not a solitary organism. A tree is part of a forest. And the reason why trees die when we stick them in a pot is because they don't have the other trees around to share resources. They're part of a network and there's mushrooms and there's soil, which is living and all. Not just that, but that then the system of trees is relating to these other systems, like system of ocean and system of weather and system of birds, kind of metasystems or systems with systems with systems. Yeah, yeah. Systems with systems with systems and that 
our perception of them, our experience of them, um, because we're humans on Team Human, you know, um, is best suited when we can apply our own complexity to perceiving complexity. So what I mean by that is that so often we're talking about complexity as though it's some kind of like monochrome, um, you know, an intellectual pursuit that exists in the intellectual academic realm. And for me, that complexity needs to move into another territory. Um, because really when we're interacting with the, our world, we're interacting with the world that we perceive. Do we perceive that with our eyes? Do we perceive it with our intellect? Do we perceive it with our bodies, with our idea of, I mean, everything from humor to sexuality to sensuality to food to, I mean, are you, are you angry? Are you grieving? Are you confused? Like, meet the complexity with where you are. And that's so much richer than just this kind of, um, you know, sort of textbook discourse around complexity. Like and I'm some kind of neutral observer and I'm seeing blue or I'm, see you know. Which, of course, is never what complexity or systems right. are supposed to be. I mean, number one rule of second order cybernetics is to observe the observer. Right? That's a relational relation. Right? So who's right. looking? Well, but that's then, but right. that's scary to people. Even just on a like, what if you're like, what if your shrink is having feelings too about what's going on in the room or judging or what if they're human? I mean, they are human, but that all of a sudden, you know, like the idea of count that you're two people in a room talking is like that's intimate and weird and unpredictable and I know, but don't you think it's even weirder? If your shrink is pretending that he's not a human, <laughs> I mean, like everybody seems to, isn't that even stranger? Isn't that just totally bizarre when there's this withholding of information and what happens when you withhold your information? And then I start to feel like, well, Doug's withholding this information. So I'm going to withhold this information. And then you see me withholding a lot of information. So what do you do? You withhold more. Well, I also withhold my information. I'm ashamed of my information. What, mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That I'll get judged for, oh, he had that thought, or he's seeing things this way. Exactly. So, I mean, really, in order for us to get this team human thing going, we need to really address this holdback. And, and that means authorizing and giving credibility to the ways in which we are making sense of our world. And the way in which we do that, you know, it's not all um, intellectual. Having said that, the rigor is all the more, not less. Right. Because now I'm not just being intellectual, logically rigorous. Now I'm being like heart rigorous and social rigorous and memory rigorous and emotionally rigorous. And paying attention to the complexity of the people around you and the organisms around you, the contexts around you with another kind of attention. It's a kind of like, I don't know, like wide angle, super sensitivity attention that allows you to see the complexity around you or perceive it, whether that's with your eyes or whatever, um, and therefore respond to it.
right? So one of the things that we are really suffering from globally, we being team human, um, is that we're not responding to complexity very well. We're just not. Well, because once, uh, once I start to see a system like uh, natural environment, and I can see then, oh my gosh, there's sort of this catastrophic collapse thing going on. I mean, systems, when I start to see the systems, I start to get, uh, they, they look like they're in trouble. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's a... Yeah, you know what? It's true. What you're saying is so true. This is going to hurt, right? There's some pain here. This is also about a kind of acknowledgement that we're several generations into some severe exploitation and extraction. And um, this is going to hurt. The only way that you can have the mindset to just go for it, just take something, to just, you know, to do that thing of going into a room, into a forest, into a culture, and just taking what you need to take, is if you're numb. Right. Well, Native Americans, I, I read a great book called uh, Columbus and the Cannibals mm. uh, about uh, Native American experience of Westerners. And they said they thought we had a disease. They called it Wetico. Because why else would you just kill for the sake of killing and clear-cut forests and not see the organism? Right. And so, you know, how did this numbness get started? And how do we teach our children to be numb? And, you know, what what... What are the aspects of our lives that are building this numbness in? So, you know, the, the way that the education system is compartmentalizing um, everything or the way that, uh, I mean, the way that a child feels when their parent walks by someone homeless on the street and doesn't do anything. What is the child thinking? What is the child learning? And then if the parents stop for every homeless person to try to give them food or money and then they get spit at or something and they're trying to spare their child this, it's a hard choice for the parent too, though. It's a seriously hard choice because it's not just us as individuals, right? That's why you're calling it team. Right. Because this is about collective. And it's not about just the choices I make for me and my kids. Right. It's about how we do this together and how we are entering an era together with the acknowledgement that we're carrying a lot of pain, right? In, in the gender relations, look at what's going on uh-huh. there. Um, and you know what? We don't know what to do, okay? So there's a lot of anxiety around. We have to create a new model, We have to have new rules for social engagement, new rules for the social contract, new rules for the economic contract. We need new rules for everything. Do we? I mean... Or do we move into some kind of no rules? I mean, as a systems, as a kind of systems thinker, we could look at the difference between, say, traffic lights and a traffic circle. It's always a beautiful example where a traffic light has rules, you stop... You know, and it's great for authority and security, we know, but it's not as efficient or even as 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 complex as a traffic circle. You learn a couple of little rules like whoever's in the circle has right of way and turn to the right. 
That's all you need to know, and you get this living, complex thing. And it's not about rules at that point. It's not about following the red or green. It's about learning to negotiate with all the other people. And what do we do, Doug? I mean, we don't know how to live in a new way. We don't know how to do gender relationships in a new way. We don't know how to raise our kids in a new way. People try, I mean, the 60s was so much about trying all these intentional communities and free love, and we're just going to let the, you know, the, the new rules emerge spontaneously. But, well, I guess some bastards ended up breaking in on the scene and using it to exploit tripping teenagers or something. But, and we kind of tried, I mean, how do you, how, how, how do we do, go from here to there? I mean, it seems it's got to be some incremental... I don't know. I mean, I think for me, okay, so there's this thing. I've been playing with this idea of warm data. Right, which is really what made me want to talk to you and to begin with, because it seems like such an oxymoron, because data is such a cold way of understanding humans. Yeah, that's why yeah. I was playing with this. But I mean, it's a fun terminology, and I, I got the word because my dad used to talk about um, warm ideas, okay? And warm ideas were ideas that had their relational um, connectivity processes kind of on board. So things like, you know, his idea of the pattern that connects, that's a warm idea. It's an idea that leads you into a, 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 another whole grouping of ideas around relationships, right? So I was at this conference in 2012 at SAS on big data. SAS is? The, I don't know what it stands for, strategic analysis systems or systems. I don't know. Uh -huh. It's this, you know, one of those big places. Big institute places. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's the place where they send all our data and then it gets categorized. Huh. So, or it's one of yeah. those places, not, yeah. not the only one. There's probably, but, um, and they were, this was 2012. So it was kind of the beginning of the big data craze. And uh, I was sitting there listening to this just romance with the idea that if we just had more streams of information, what we could do is we could synthesize context. And I'm thinking, oh, this could get really messy because right. all those streams of data, I mean, think about how we get, how we do research, right? The first thing that we do is we pull things out of context and study them, and then we can measure them, and we can do this to them, and we can do right, that so we to did, them. Since Francis Bacon and the beginning of science, think of nature as this, and basically he talked about nature as a woman that you rape, you know, and you, yeah. you, you and but that allows you to do science. You separate out the thing that you want to observe. You, you remove it from its system in order to study it. Right. Basically, you objectify it. Right. And anything that gets objectified is soon exploitable. So, but if you, you you can't get metrics on something, unless numeric you, metrics, unless you objectify it, right? Okay, fine. So that's what makes <laughs> our airplanes fly. That what's what's make our laptops work. Right. The microphones work. That's great. There's only one problem, which is that we are destroying the ecology that we actually need to survive and each other. So, right. it's a, there's a drawback. Right. It got us so far. I mean that we could. Put, you know, a good Monsanto weed killer and nutrient on the soil and kind of get something like broccoli to come out of it. And but, then... And then the topsoil is gone. And then and there was, <laughs> you know, there was some 
some relational damage consequences. Yeah. Right. There were consequences of consequences. Yeah. So, you know, we pull the information out of context. And the thing is, we never put it back. So basically, warm data is the idea of putting it back. Put it back in the context and see what happens. So it's like data in vivo as opposed to in vitro. Yeah. It's, it's data with its contextual integrating processes. It's, it's looking at what is, what's happening in a complex system. Not necessarily what are the parts of the complex system and how do we measure them and define them, but what are the relationships that give that system its vitality, that make it alive, that give it, give it its, its, its everything, right? So some complex systems, um, in the way that they're creating relationships, are dangerous, okay? So, I mean, arguably, capitalism is one right. of those things. It's a complex system that's built of a lot of patterns of relationships that have a lot of contextual processes moving together in them. But it's moving in a way that we might not want it to continue. Um, so how would we best understand that? Right. But then the problem is, and this is the problem I've had since the early 90s, since I started my whole thing, that I am a disciplined generalist. I'm a lateral thinker. I will relate capitalism to earth science, to technology, to all those things, right? That's what you do too. Yeah. But the experts in the individual field, the experts within capitalism say, how dare you talk about capitalism? Where's your economics degree? Don't you understand Phillips' curve disproves, disproves everything you say? And it's like, yeah, if you're inside capitalism, I can see why you would think that way. But if you step outside capitalism and see how it's interacting with all these other systems, well, and you're back in your, into your sort of meta-systems, contextual systems, contextualizing other systems, then you can start to see, oh, there's a problem here. But they don't want us. They see us as less disciplined, as, as uh, we haven't, you know what I mean? We haven't gone through each doctoral program in each area that we're trying to comment on. And yet, how's it going? Yeah. It's not going so well. <laughs> so, um, you know, on that level, I just kind of think that we should pal up and find, find the others and, and keep at it. Because, uh, I mean, how are you going to, what? Okay, in, in the question of gender inequality, where's the problem? Is it economic? Is it cultural? Is it political? Is it in the education system? Is it in our health system? Is it in the media? Where's the problem? What if it's just a bad habit? You see, it's... <laughs> It's somewhere, but, but or it's everywhere. It's yeah, it and it's in the relationship in between all those systems. Right. So when we want to really make a uh, uh, change, the conditions in which something is is taking place, it's about recognizing what's coming out of those relational processes that happen somewhere between media and money and culture and religion and. And, and political, political right. forces, there's this idea of gender that is so baked in now that if we were to change all the rules tomorrow, would you really be able to think of femininity in another way? Where is that information right. located? Or if you want to say, where is the 
um, I'm in, I'm playing right now with the uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals because there's like this 17 right. Sustainable Development Goals, and each one of them is kind of like a decontextualized, siloed description of a problem that right. deep down is completely right. interdependent. Exactly. And then, you know, where I got involved in it and I just couldn't even stomach it was there's people trying to develop blockchains for each one of the 17 goals. Here's yeah. a blockchain for So now we're just going to have a computer program to solve this. So we can't solve interdependent complex problems by identifying them in silos and then having siloed solutions. And actually, billions of dollars are going to get lost doing that. But, but the alternative and, is what? To solve everything at once? Yeah, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm dead serious. I, think I know, it's, but how? I think it's actually a lot easier to deal with in whole systems change than it is to deal with compartmentalized or fragmented Right. I mean, incrementalism. So, right. so if you take in a, in a tiny system to understand, like your child yeah. is acting out at school and you are doing something bad, uh, starting fires. Yeah. And you could say, okay, we're going to solve that problem by keeping the child away from matches. Makes sense on a certain, but no, wait a minute. The child has that problem. The child might have another problem, but all those problems might be solved through. What about emotional nourishment? What about sh paying attention to my child? And all those other, all those individual problems get solved in that sort of one master uh, yeah. solution. And that's why you need warm data. Because what you're talking about is how is the child in relationship to its world? And that's going to be a lot of different contextual relationships, relationships to parents, relationships to school, relationships to media, relationships to all kinds of different, you know, the child's friends, um, and so on and so forth the child and its relationship to its own body, right? It becomes, so it's not, it's not overwhelming because when we get into that warm data process, something pops out and you never know what it's going to be. But there are these unexpected, indirect patterns and patterning processes that allow something to surface that becomes right. an entry point into a systemic shift, a condition change, so that the child is learning to be in, in its world in another way. But it almost takes a, uh, and I don't mean it in, in, in a patronizing way, but it almost takes a, a poetic worldview. No, it absolutely takes a poetic worldview. You, I, you, I, I was watching this stuff, the Supreme Court nightmare thing that's going on now, and I saw... Mitch McConnell go on TV and talking about the confirmation, and he said, oh, we're just going to plow this through. Yikes. Plow this through. And I'm thinking, that's the whole problem. It's men plowing through no matter what. No yeah. matter what the system is saying, no matter what the woman is saying, no matter what the marriage, but the people are just plow through. And, and for me, though, it was a learning moment of like, wow, part of me, I just force things. I just, and to see that almost as a learning moment for me or teaching or whatever they call them to say, that's one of our systemic, almost systemic core command problems. Just jam it in there when it's not working. It's what we were talking about a minute ago. It's the numbness that came with the, the cultural um, modus operandi of go for it. Right? Right. To, to go for it you have to be desensitized to what you're plowing through. 
Right. Ends so, justify the means. Think it, go it, get it, whatever the secret used to say. You right. put your vision wall, focus on your vision, focus on your affirmation, don't listen to what's happening in the world, just go. Yeah. And it's that there's an enormous numbness. So, uh, you know, allowing there to be an, a, a kind of inquiry toward another kind of information that's going to allow people to become aware of interdependency. You know, what are all these processes that that child is going through? And where is the place to, 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 to kind of catch the rhythm with that child, right? Instead of hack the child's problems. Right. How do we catch the rhythm? And that's absolutely a poetic question. And the sensitivity around that is also um, super rigorous. Right. It's, it's, I mean, it's a form of pattern recognition. Which is hard to do also, though. I mean, it almost requires you to almost soften your focus, you know, and start to look at the flows rather than the, the dots, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a, a process of repeated zooming in and zooming out, looking at details, looking at larger contexts, looking at details, looking at larger contexts. But also, I've been playing with this idea of trans-contextual description. You know, we're talking about context, but really... Is there such a thing as any living system that exists in just one context? And this is a this is a been for me a fantastic opening. Um, and it was kind of inspired by getting frustrated with the terminology around interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary. And I started to feel like, oh my God, actually the world isn't made of disciplines. It just isn't, okay? The academy is made of disciplines. Right. And the world is actually made of contexts. And so I, I need to get out of these disciplines because I kept coming across, you know, contextual forms of relationship that there was no discipline to describe. Um, so when you look at, I mean, even your own identity, okay? So, so who are you, right? And what are the contexts of Dugness? in which you go around the world dugging. Right. Right? So you are, you're a son, and there's a whole contextual set of communication patterns and relationships and memories and all kinds of stuff around you being a son. But you're also a father. And that's a very different set of communicational patterns and relationships that's right. around that. And then there's you as a teacher, and that's a different set of relationships and patterns. And then there's you as a living organism in the ecology and you have some, I don't know, 40 trillion microbacterias that live mm -hmm. on you. And that's a different kind of, right. of communication and patterning with the world around you. So there's lots of different contexts in who you are. And if I want to begin to understand you or become familiar with you, it's a good idea for me to recognize that there are multiple contextual processes that you are within and that they're changing. And with those changes, you change. And who you were two hours ago and who you'll be two hours from now is necessarily shifted. There's necessarily right. responses and, and shiftings in there at some levels. At other levels, there's something that's not shifting, maybe an essence or maybe just bad habits that just keep repeating. Um, but, but At least there's something there's holding me together. There's something holding you together. <laughs> But but where you know where is the edge of you, right? Do you edge with? Do you end with your skin? Do you end with right. your family? Do you end with the, your 
you know, microbiome's relationship with the biosphere? Do you, where's the edge of you? Well, exactly. I mean, in a world where we identify everything as property, that gets really easy. Oh, the edges of my body is the end of me, but, but actually, we know it's not. What does that even mean? How did right. we ever get to this error? It's such an error. Because the edge of you is not the edge of you. It's not the edge of your skin or your bank account. Right? What is what is your health? Like what if you were to imagine what is your health? You're you were talking today about immune systems. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about immune systems. So to keep you healthy, you need an immune system. And that means that's partially your sleeping patterns. That's partially your relationship with your partner and the world around you and how stressed out you are. It's your economic existence. It's your relationship to your kids. It's how much time you spend in nature, how much air you're breathing, how much sunlight you get, what kind of food you're eating. It's how also you f- how I perceive of self and other. Exactly. And the, what about meaning? How about the meaning in your life? That's part of your... Right. A person gets disconnected from their job or their organization that they've been with for a whole lot of years. They get sick. A lot of them die. Right. So if I, if I were the politician of the future, right, and I were to say, from now on, I'm going to think about my constituents, not in terms of my voters, but in terms of their immune systems. Mm-hmm. How would that change things? What kind of really substantial changes would that make if I were to be watching out for your sleep Imagine reduce people's stress, improve the quality of their water, make sure they've got good air, check on the condition of their relationships. Are they integrated in their community? Do they feel that they have purpose? Do they belong? Right. Oh my gosh. Are they looking out for each other? Right. So all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the world's different. You're in another set of questions. A completely different set of questions. It's not about are you left or alt-right? Are you pro this or anti that? Right. Because, yeah. Right now, the people who are trying to think about the world that way, and there's a few of, of, of the listeners of this show who are really struggling to enact the, the understanding of the world that we're talking about, but it's really, really hard, you know, to give an appropriate maternity leave to an employee when your, your, uh, your, when your state's employment rules don't really allow it or to, to give, to give healthcare to, to, it's hard to, to run even a, a, a company of any kind. It's hard to work with people. It's hard for me to even give my students the time that they deserve when I'm getting 40, 50, 60 students thrown into a seminar or what used to be a seminar. You know, so there's a, there, it feels like there's a tremendous disconnect that happened. When I think about the world this way, it starts to feel, again, like a, like a utopian intellectual pursuit rather than the, the kind of stuff I thought about Back in the rave days, back when I would, you know, imagine. I know, but what else are you going to do? I mean, the thing is, is that everything that happens in a day is part of your world. You're going to perceive it. You're going to make sense of it. You're going to respond to it. What information are you using to do that with? And how are you thinking about the world that you're in? And, you know... Even to get through a normal day with a normal job and a normal life in a normal schedule, 
there's plenty of opportunity to make substantial changes in your life by looking at the, the relational information. But once we contemplate that, and you, you write about that on your, on your blog, which is at... Uh, it's a WordPress. Nora Bateson at WordPress. Nora Bateson yeah. at WordPress.com. You talk about, you can't go through a day without, you know, the, the, the coffee you buy is screwing someone up. The, the just, you know, waking up in the morning is leading to a certain amount of pollution. That And every day we are contributing to the destruction of the planet, the exploitation of other people, you know, the, yeah. the slavery. That when you look at the system in an yeah. almost Buddhist open way, we're all doing so much damage with every waking hour. Just the lights being on in this room is, who knows what it's doing. Like I said, this is going to hurt. This is going to hurt. And and numbness is not your friend. So I think... it just allows you to do more of it. You just close your eyes. You just grin and bear it. Yeah. Right. It, numbness is not your friend. So I think really the the best response to this pain is actually increased sensitivity. And that's a kind of, a kind of um, counterintuitive response. The, the more sensitivity that, that I feel that I have, the more I'm able actually to see not only the pain, but the connections and the incredible processes of vitality in life. So, and then you know what to tweak or what to emphasize or where to... And it doesn't wear me down because being connected to the vitality of life is inherently vitalizing. Right. Right, so it's not like it's going to overwhelm me, and 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 I'm going to be somehow lost in space. And no, it's the exact opposite. I don't feel isolated. I'm not depressed. I'm, you know, fully standing in the eye of the storm of this incredible, uh, horrific exploitation that we are within. But I don't feel hopeless because what I really see is that life is inherently improvisational and creative. And that it, and human beings in connection to each other generate all kinds of unexpected right. ideas and There's possibilities. Novelty ahead. Yeah, and within that complexity is the possibility. Right, you want to get rid of possibility, redu reduce everything. The the trick with it is not that people are looking for simple solutions to things, but the the critique I sometimes get of the show is like. Well, you're up in the ether talking about all these ideas. I'm just a guy working in technology who hates my job and want to do something different that's not destroying the planet. I'm just trying to, you know, run a, an organic bakery against an economy that seems dead set on preventing me from doing this. I'm just trying to be a teacher in a school when they're not paying for any supplies and my kids are getting, you know, yelled at by their parents. And, you know, so... so we are a whole lot of individuals listening to this show who are in uh, personally precarious situations financially and stuck within systems that they understand uh, are just stacked against them currently. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are so baked in to this not one system, but a whole system of systems um, that are completely interlocked and you know it, it, there's the the relationship between the um you know like this idea that we're going to change the education system right we, we, what we really need to do is fix education 
But, you know, if you buy a bunch of iPads and new curriculum for the education system, it's still inside the employment system. It's still inside the culture. It's still part of the intergenerational set of expectations of what's going to happen with your kids. Right. And if you do it with the iPads, then you just end up embedding these values, these numb values unconsciously so far deep into the system that you don't even see them anymore. Exactly. So, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I mean, I, I'm, I totally agree with your listeners with this, you know, question of like, what do I do? Right. And it's hard to even have the conversation. So even if in my little community of people who, Hastings on Hudson, who you would think everybody, you know, has the same sort of values. If we actually sat down and said, what do we want our schools to accomplish? There'd be blood in the streets, practically, if people actually, you know what I mean? Because they would differ so much. I want my schools to help my kid get into college. I want my school to help my kid get a job. I want my school just to open their heart and their mind to new ideas. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's probably I'd be in that camp there. But but uh oh, then that's the that, that's the voice of privilege, you know, to be able to we would just fight over that. So we don't even have the the shared values from which to develop alternative systems. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess there's a, a side of me too that's just sort of like, look, this didn't work out. Okay, we we are in it's sort of an hourglass right now, of you know sort of the 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 last the last breaths of this continuance. I mean, and, of this sort of Newtonian capitalist divisive, uh, uh, in vitro approach yeah, to the world. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about your story about the billionaires, you know, and every time I think about your story about the billionaires, I just I just want to ask, like. What are we saving for? You know, what are we saving for? Like a groovier apocalypse? Is that what we're saving for? What are we doing exactly? And, you know, every single Nazi in Nuremberg said the same thing. I was just doing my job. You know, really bad things happen when we just do our jobs. Right. Really bad things happen. Because the person who invented that job wasn't even thinking what would what would be the end state of that? Or at least I would think the person would, again, back to cybernetics, the person would be alive and responsive enough to see that if the course that was set 200 years ago for that profession or that discipline or that industry, if that course turns out not to be a great course, you should adjust. But it's like nobody's adjusting. But because, <laughs> because we can't. You know, there's a part of us that just can't do it. You just, in order, it's a double bind. Like my dad used to talk about the double bind. In order to survive, you have to partake in all these systems that are inherently deadly. Right. And then you have to hope that somehow you're doing more change to the systems than the systems are doing to you. But who knows if you are? Well, I mean, honestly, I've, I've been sitting at dinner tables since 1972 when I was a little squirt listening to these brilliant minds have brilliant conversations and and they were you know my dad and Stuart Brand and and all these people and you know what conversation they were having in 1972 no this one Aye. and so this idea that we're going to have incremental change is starting to really lose its luster as you know i'm starting to think maybe the changes that we're looking for are not in with they're not inside the institutions. 
They're between them. It's not maybe the institutions that we need to change, but our relationships to them. So how do we do that? Okay, in order to do that, we have to recognize that, that you and me and all the humans on Team Human, we actually live in this weird kind of liminal realm. And, and right. you know, that's where we actually right. are. We've overnowned ourselves in a way. In other words, we objectified, objectified each of us. It's funny because um, we had, a, 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 I guess he's a chiropractor, a vitalist practitioner. on, And one of the things he was trying to explain was that uh, we focus so much on our organs as who we are, but it's all those tissues between the organs is where all the action really is. And they've just finally, regular science has caught up and realized, oh, that the connective mesentery, whatever this tissue is called, it's this weird matrix that does all this stuff. And it's like, if you're really looking for where's the person, it's in the connective tissue more there than the you, organs. That's the, that's the thing right there. That's the pattern. So, you know, that's why I was saying, instead of trying to fix the school system, we have to change our relationship to it. And we can't do that as individuals. We need each other. We absolutely need each other. If we're going to respond to the interdependency of our world, we have to do it with interdependency. Right. And, and, you know, it's sort of like when we started and I was saying, if you want to, if you want to, perceive and respond to complexity, you have to do it with complexity. You can't right. just do it with a mathematical formula. You need your whole complex system to be like Velcro on a whole complex system. Right. You're reiterating or, or recapitulating the whole, for me, the whole team human journey. Because I, I, I studied in high school, I went to an Ivy League school and did all the things, and I was trained to believe that the way to fix things is to go alone in my study, read lots of books, learn lots of things, become a wise man, mm. and then bring solutions back to the people. And, you know, so I wrote 20 books. This next one's my 20th book. Bravo. Trying to thank you. But, you know, and then finally I'm like, oh, wait a minute. It's not about me figuring out how to see the world appropriately. It's about, in a way, that original rave, Gaia hypothesis, global mind thing. The only way we're going to be able to see the system is with a billion sets of eyes. That's or right. five billion sets That's of eyes. That's right. So it's the team. So it's like, I'm going to stop writing all these books and start engaging with people you know, at least if even if it starts out just as one-on-one, -on -one, lots of one-on-one -on -one conversations initiate the process by which we 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 incorporate or celebrate everybody's perspective in order to see how dimensional these problems are. Yeah, I I started working on this thing called a warm data lab. Okay, and warm data labs are I did it's my new favorite toy, <laughs> and I'm so excited about it. It has. Uh, on the surface, it's very simple. Anyone can participate in a warm data lab. I've done about 100 of them around the world with kids, with, you know, all sorts of different people in all different cultures. And it's um, a kind of a group activity that allows people to collectively explore the transcontextual interdependency of whatever the question is. 
Okay, so the question could be, what is sexual consent? And then we would think about what are all the contexts that are involved in that question? A question that sometimes gets, you know, kind of reduced to a binary. But there's a lot in that question, right? That's an economic question. That's a political question. It's a religious question. It's a, it's a health question. It's an educational question. It's a media question. It's, right? There's a lot it's of It's a context. linguistic question. It's a linguistics question. Exactly. Yeah. So, and then people in the room work through these sort of contextual things in, in this process. And um, by the end of about an hour, they're pretty steeped in the interdependency of that topic. Where is that? Where is that consent, yeah. right? And my point around it is this, is that what happens is that together they can increase insights and start to ask another order of questions, right. okay? And that's what I'm after. Right, but that's the hardest part. I mean, I've been, I've been talking with co-ops. I just had Nathan Schneider, who's one of the platform cooperative guys. And one of the rules of co-ops is that cooperatives cooperate with each other. So I'm great at talking to co-ops and getting them through all the stages about being cooperative as units. But then it's like, well, wait a minute. We got to cooperate with our competitor, with the other group. And it's like, that's where... That's where it actually begins, is the one system talking to the other system, and how are they cooperating? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that sort of brings me back to the liminal space right? of that recognition that, I mean, we're all in the liminal space anyway. Like but you, that's why we're playing with that. I mean, yeah. now when you look at you know the transgender movement or the, the androgyny movement or some of the, the psychedelic movement and the lucid dreaming movement, it's all about people want to reify these liminal spaces, even if they're doing it in sort of crude representational ways to start, like really obvious ways, at least they want to be, they want to show there is no line. There is mm -hmm. no, you know, to get out of that binary and into at least more of a yin-yang where things are falling into each other. Yeah. But I, I mean, I don't think that, I just don't think we can do it alone. I mean, right. I think if you want to... Well, there is no liminal alone, finally. There's right. a tripping. Yeah. You know, there's there's fantasy. There's... Yeah. So, and if you want to generate warm data, you have to have multiple description. It has to come from multiple directions. You have to use multiple textures of communication. Um, you, you know, it, it doesn't happen. You can't get at complexity unless you have collective. Can people DIY a warm data lab? Not yet. I'm doing training courses because there's actually, it's, it's really simple on the surface but there's a lot of theory underneath it. I mean, I you know, it's a lot. But it seems almost like what would happen, uh, almost like collective psychotherapy on a certain level. You know what? It, in a way, it is because it's really uh, restorative to start to uh, sense that connective and that interdependent process in, in any question. I mean, I've done them on immigration, on sexual consent, on health, on education, on any any topic that's a complex system. But you, you could do, do it with you could do it with five year olds just on color. Exactly on seeds, right? Or, right, food, right. You can do it with on anything, and and you can use because well, everything's connected to everything in the end, right? Right, but but there is there is some stuff under it. Yeah. Holding it is not nothing. 
Um, because, but it's, right. it's, it's been fascinating to do this because what happens, and this is where I think it would be really interesting for your work to check it out, mm-hmm. is that there, it's absolutely dependent upon individual linkings and relinkings and reconnecting of memories and sense-making that isn't possible without the group. It happens through telling each other stories and sharing ideas and coming at things from directions that are surprising and being in dialogue in ways that you didn't expect with people who are, you know, it's the real person, right? It is that whole neurocognitive process of being in right. with real people. So there is no virtual simulate. There's no, you know, a second life way of doing this. Well, because it's so local, right? What happens in the room is what happens in the room. It's so localized. Um, but what I'm experimenting with right now is how do those locales share their insights um, to get a kind of meta happening right. at that level. Um, and that's right. pretty interesting. So I did a, a warm data lab in San Francisco on um, addiction, um, trying to you know pull this Addiction is a big deal right now. We're really needing to think about it, not only in terms of the rise of opiate addiction, um, but also addiction to ideas. Addiction well, it's become to- our model of, 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 exactly, our model of interaction with pretty much everything. Mm. And sometimes we joke about it. You know, oh, I'm addicted to, you know, swiping my device, or I love the feel of the case. And right, I, or my lattes. Or my right. <laughs> Gotta get my morning, yeah, mocha, china, whatever they are. Yeah. And then I did another one in Indonesia in Jakarta. Mm. And what the insights that came out of these two groups were so different, but Mm. they were so useful to each other. So the group in Indonesia had this incredible set of insights around recognizing that identifying the addiction inside the individual was a mistake, that actually addiction was something that was existing in the community that was manifesting in the individual. Mm. And so treatment, too, needed to exist in the community and manifest in the individual. So it wasn't about sending them to a better rehab. It was about having better communication between the various, you know, police station and school and rehab and, and all of the, the aspects of their community that could support them. That's amazing, right. right? And then the Warm Data Lab in San Francisco, they glommed onto the idea of this idea of addiction is not just about substance. It's about recognizing that one of the reasons we are in, you know, kind of entrained in these systems, like you were describing that, that, you know, I just have to go to work tomorrow and do this, that it's a body of ideas that we're addicted to, addicted to the ideas of capitalism, addicted to the idea that we have the right of ownership of, you know, that there's a whole lot of interesting sort of relationships where you you see people working with, you know, forming new economies and whether it's a circular economy or a sharing or a caring or a green or a blue or a this or a that, that there's still at the base of it, there's still the idea that you have the right to profit. And somehow that's one we just, we just can't, we just can't quite let go of that. It's just a given. Yeah. We just, yeah, that would be naive, right? You can't let go of that. Right. And as long, as long as we think we can, though, then we're talking about taking something out of the system. Yeah. But we just replace it with another, you know, methadone right. for heroin. 
Yeah, that's why I got so interested in this. I was saying before in this, you know, the 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 domestication of humans. Yeah, I loved you know, that. Once they started to put them in there, everyone had their own box, you know, their own permanent dwelling. Mm. And that's when war started. That's when property started. That's when spousal abuse started. That's when women were repressed and men. That's when we got our first patriarchies. It's really interesting. You know, and and now, I mean, well, gosh, in America, of course, you homeownership is the supposed to be the goal of every young family to get to own your home. And look what we do to get to own that home. And housing starts and pollution and well, and then the there's thing. the other eighty percent of the world, right, or ninety nine at this point, yeah, yeah, who don't even have a country that they can live in, much less a, a home. Yeah, I was with some people the other day, and they were saying we were talking about you know just sort of the state of things and. They were saying, yeah, but I mean, do you think most people see that? And their response was, no, there's about 15% of the world that really doesn't see what kind of urgency we're in. The rest are living in it. Right. And it's only going to get more urgent as the waters rise. And Yeah. I mean, you, you, I was reading your, your, one of your, that was that big essay, the new one. Um, when you were talking about wicked problems, mm. and it seemed like you were saying that talking about something as a wicked problem, and for for listeners who don't know, wicked problem would be like you know uh, uh, the prison system is a wicked problem, or climate change is a wicked problem, or or you know the hunger is a wicked problem. That thinking about things in that sort of Gates Foundation, here's a wicked problem that we're going to solve, is itself really problematic. Because it's it's siloing a problem as if we're going to solve that rather than looking at its its relationship to all the other problems. Right. Right. So how, if it's a crooked tree in the forest, looking at what are the contexts that it's surrounded by? What are those contextual relationships in which that crookedness makes sense? How is it learning to be in its world? Right? So you look at this education system that's compartmentalizing and fragmenting and and uh, siloing our ways of making sense of the world from, you know, small, tiny little children up. And you think, in what way does that make sense to the context of our lives? And if you start to ask that question, then the understanding of how and the familiarity of how our education system is running through and repeating the patterns that are in everything, right? What do we do with health? We separate the parts of the body. What do we do with economy? What do we do with politics? What do we do with all of these different places where we, we separate the parts out and then we think of them as a, in kind of engineering conceptuals and think about how then we can fix the parts when they break. And it's this deep mechanistic metaphor that thinks that you can, you know, when your truck breaks down, you can replace the carburetor or the distributor or something, right? When a family breaks down, you can't replace the parts. You can try, but... <laughs> <laughs> right? There's yeah. way too much relational yeah. compensatory stuff going on. And so if you don't understand the relational compensatory processes, the questions that get asked and the, the, the idea of trying to find solutions by whatever circuitous means you might want to do that, um, it, it, can, it can add to lead to lots more problems. 
So, you know. So it's almost like, you know, because I keep wanting to go, and maybe this is just the, the, the idiot training, you know, because I keep wanting to ask, and I guess a service for the listeners, well, on an individual level, then what can, or on as, as individuals, what can we do to, and in some sense you're saying, there is no individual. You can't do anything as, you don't never do anything as an individual anyway. We can't do this as individuals. I mean, the best thing we could do as individuals is what I always ask, find the others. You know, it, it's, right. It start engaging differently with everybody else. And I think, though, that there's one thing we can do as individuals, which is to just recognize that this is actually, it's about training. It's a kind of a practice. And, mm. you know, that kind of perception that is able to see complexity and contextual relationships, which, you know, when I say that right now, it sounds really blah, blah, blah. Spiritual or yeah, something. Or something. Yeah, or something. But, I mean, reality, you're a lot of contexts. And beginning to see yourself in all of the contexts that you live in from your, you know, your all these different aspects of you. Who are you in relation to this friend or that friend or your dad or your son or your employer or your, you know, your your lover or your, right? Who are you? Well, and, I know nothing, though. I know when you put it like that, I yeah. know no, I don't know why my cells are holding on to my body, why they're even deciding to cooperate. And that's a, but my point is that's a great place to start. <laughs> if you are able to see yourself with that, think of how you might be able to see other people and just not reduce them, not commit the violence of reductionism on the people around you. Allow them to be complex. It, you know, you don't have to solve for complexity. You just have to know it's there. And, and that's a huge step forward. I mean, ultimately, for me, I think it's a great act of love to allow the people that you come in contact with to be complex. Thank you so much for being on Team Human. It, it makes my year. I love it, and it's great to talk to you. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was Nora Bateson, author of Small Arcs of Larger Circles. You can find out more about her work at internationalbatesoninstitute.org. We'll be back in the basement media squad at Queens College Laboratory for Digital Humanism next week with more of humanity's strange and wonderful efforts at evolution. We are entirely worker and listener supported. You can join the team by subscribing at Patreon. You can also help the show by reviewing Team Human on iTunes. We put a link in the episode description in your podcast player. We're also broadcasting on a few college and community stations. If you want us on yours, please email stephen at teamhuman.fm. That's stephen with a ph at teamhuman.fm. This is Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.